Okay, so Deuteronomy 11. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed, and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country. What he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the wilderness until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord has done. Observe, therefore, all the commands I am giving you today, so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land the Lord, swore to, the Lord swore to your ancestors to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing of milk and honey. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the years, year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your castle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk around the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land of the Lord, and the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you will set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as he promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, westward toward the setting sun, near the great trees of Moray, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah in the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God has given you. When you have taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I am setting before you today. Can I just say once again, um, we're on a reasonably short lead time for the Kids Club, which is on the 3rd, 4th, 5th of April. Um, parents, if your children can come, you'll need to click on uh, the webpage on our website. It'll be under Emmanuel Kids. It's going to be live by Tuesday. Um, click on that, download it, fill it in. Please bring it to us uh, next Sunday. And once again, we want to get the word out to as many people as we can. So please do take as many as you can use and give them to neighbours. Give them to friends. Webpage live on Tuesday, 
looking at Johnny. Web page live on Tuesday. Download the form if they can come. But please, uh, we look forward to having you there. If you can help, come and see me. If you can uh, not help in terms of your presence there at the camp, but you can pray, then that's is just as much help, and we desperately need you to pray. So please commit to doing that as well. I was on the internet this week. Uh, I was doing some work. I wasn't playing, and I came across a list of the top 10 things that people fear the most. Now, you would think that death would be on there, but it wasn't on this list. We had the usual suspects. What are they? I'm going to give you a test, so please join in. The fear of small spaces. Claustrophobia, thank you. The fear of large spaces. Agrophobia, well done. Two out of two. This gets harder. Number five is the fear of dogs. Dog phobia? No. Canine phobia or canophobia. Um, the fear of spiders is number one. That's the fear of, what's the long name? Arachnophobia, good. What about the fear of flying? Baophobia, good try, no. Trophobia. Uh, and this one that interests me the most that I don't struggle with at all, you'll be no surprise if you look under my fingernails, the fear of germs. That's misophobia. These are the top ten things that people have uh, struggled with in the last uh, year or so. It's a year of 2016. These were the results, the top 10 fears. I thought fear of death would be on there. I thought uh, fear of hard work could be on there. I thought fear of Brexit would be on there. None of those things were on there. But what interests me as I got thinking and looking at Deuteronomy chapter 11 as we work our way through this book, we're about to take a big leap. Next week we'll be looking at chapter 28. We're going to skip over all the laws that have to do of living out the gospel in the land. But before we take that leap, I wanted to look at chapter 11. And as I got looking at this chapter, I thought, I think this is about the issue of fear and trust that we've seen before. The word fear does not appear in this chapter. We've heard the word that your enemies would be afraid, that God would give the fear of his mighty arm upon the inhabitants of Cana. But it's, it's not fear on the inside, but I think that's what this chapter is about. Not fear of germs or airplanes or small or large spaces, but fear that God will come through for us. Think about it. Beneath the fear of spiders, beneath the fear of large spaces, beneath the fear of germs and lots of other things that are not on that list, beneath those things, the issue that each of us struggle with is the issue of the security zone, the issue of the spiritual life raft. Whether your fears are on those lists or whether it's fear of darkness, one of our children hates darkness, so they always say they can't quite reach up to the light switch. Can you turn on the light for me to drive my fear away? But beneath the fear, whatever it is that you struggled with, if you're honest enough to say, and don't tell Dave because tell everybody else, but whatever your fear is, beneath those things, when you scratch beneath the surface, each of us has a spiritual a spiritual life raft. We have a spiritual security zone, something to hold on to so that we don't sink. I wonder what that is for you. Each of us have something that we hold on to, that we grip on to, that we think if we hold on to this, if we are near this person, if we're near this thing, whether it's your blanket when you're little, whether it's the light switch like someone in our home, whether it's a bank balance at a certain uh, blackness, rather than redness, then we are safe, then we're secure. Whatever it is, each of us has a spiritual security blanket. But let's scratch a little bit uh, closer 
to the bone. Remember that time when you were at school, there would be certain people that you would feel very comfortable to be around. They were people who were not as clever as you. They were people in the sets beneath you. But what you found hard when you were at school was when you were sat next to person X who were cleverer than you, where you got promoted to a set where you didn't feel safe and secure. It's the same in the sporting realm. Each of us knows our level if we play sport, whatever shape the ball is, whatever size the racket is, whether you're indoors or outside. We know our level, whether it's academically, whether it's in a sporting sphere, and when we go beyond that level, we know we're going to get uncomfortable. It's the same socially as well. You know where you fit. You know that if I dropped you in the middle of Ascot when it's race week, you would not feel secure or safe because they're not your people. You know that I could plant you in a housing estate not too far away, and you know that you would struggle there as well because they're not your people as well. We like to be middle class because we're Epsom. Well, we need to think that we're middle class because we're Epsom. But not too far beneath the surface, there is a fear of failure, and we are afraid about different things. Ultimately, as we scratch even further down now, it's not a fear of people. Beneath everything, everything is just a symptom. There is a deep sense in our spirits, regardless of our age or stage of life, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of our status or sporting or academic or social prowess, that God will not come through for us. That's at the heart of this chapter, and I dare to say it's at the heart of the whole Bible. If I trust God, will he come through for me? Is God trustworthy? Is he good? It's the temptation that we've had from our first parents in Genesis chapter 3. All these fears are located in the character of God, that he is not trustworthy. And Moses in chapter 11 of Deuteronomy is saying God is completely trustworthy. Let's look at a few verses. Look at verse 8 and look at verse 31. It's... Uh, there's a meter to the book of Deuteronomy that we've seen again and again. It says, verse 8, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that ye may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you're going over to possess. Verse 31, For you are to cross over the Jordan, this big mass of water in front of you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let's get our bearings, or if you're new to the series, God is telling a new generation that unlike your forefathers who saw my miraculous hand in Egypt, I want to lead you into the promised land. They didn't trust me, although I am trustworthy. I want you to take me at my word. And I want you to fulfill the promises I gave to Abraham, to fulfill the promises I gave to your parents, and go in and take the land that is yours, that I promised to Abraham in the past, that I'm going to give to you in the future, because you are weak, but I am strong. That's the whole of the book of Deuteronomy in a nutshell. But is God trustworthy? Will this new generation, as we've seen before, take God at his word? Let's look at this under two points. Number one, Moses wants to say, God is the source of your confidence. God is the source of your confidence. Where do I get that from? I get it from verses 1 to 11. For six chapters... From chapter 5 through to chapter 11, Moses has been saying under the power and authority of an influence of the Holy Spirit and the authority of God, you are to have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment, and Moses has taken six chapters to unpack that, to say, this is what God deserves. He deserves complete worship, but we worship other things. 
complete obedience, but we obey other things that have authority over this. He deserves and is worthy of your whole heart. Six chapters Moses has spent explaining that. And as this generation are preparing to go into the promised land, he says, you will be afraid of lots of things, as we've seen in previous chapters. You think that they are taller than you are. They think, you think they are stronger than you are. You think that their towers are fortified and that the land is impenetrable. But God is great and you are small. God's promises are huge, but he is greater still. And when we are afraid, we invert that order. Small things become big and God looks small. That's what happens in fear and anxiety in our spirit. Small things become big, and God looks small. That's at the root of fear as we begin to look at verses 2 to 7. Fear is an absence of thinking about God. Fear is an absence about thinking accurately about God. Fear is the absence of adoration and worship and understanding the glory and power of God and looking at something else that looks big. What do I mean? What does Moses say that God is the source of your confidence? Look at verses 2 to 7 as Moses says once again in the meter of the book. Let's look back in the history of your parents. Verse 2, remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. God has treated you as a father treats his children. You've seen his majesty, verse 2. You've seen his mighty hand, verse 2. His outstretched arm. It's one of Moses' favourite phrases to reveal the power of God. Verse 3, remember what happened in Egypt. Verse 4, remember how God's majesty and mighty arm was shown as he judged his enemies, as he divided an impenetrable wall of water called the Red Sea. Verse 5, Remember what you saw. Remember how, verse 6, God caused not an earthquake. God caused a huge opening to appear in the middle of the day as God's judgment upon his own people, as he swallowed up people who were rebellious to him. That's referring to Dathan and Abram and Eliab, the Reubenites. It's never to be seen again. Verse 7. It was your own eyes. Here's the contrast. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things that the Lord has done. You are afraid. Go in and claim the land because I've given it to you. Your knees are knocking. Your heart is melting. But remember who I am. I'm the source of your confidence. Do not be afraid. There are two aspects to fear. I said one. One is that things look big and God looks small. Whatever it is in your life. Things can appear huge. Obstacles can be vast, like one of those big um, things that you get at Aintree that you've got to jump over. And God looks small, but God is greater, Moses is saying, verses 2 to 7. But here's the second thing that happens in your heart when fear gets large and God looks small. Here's the second thing. You forget God's miraculous and mighty deeds, says Moses. You forget the magnitude of the deliverance that God did for your parents. And if you realize God's mighty arm, if you see the strength of his majesty, if you see how he crushed his enemies, won't that be the source of your confidence as you go forward? Verse 12 and following, says Moses. If you remember the miraculous nature of God's mighty deeds... That must be a fuel for your own heart that overcomes the fears, that subdues the anxieties. 
See how God has provided for you in the past. Trust him for the future. Verse 9, that was what God promised to your fathers, a land of prosperity. That's where you're heading. He's now moved from looking back to looking forward. Verses 10 to 12, you are going to a land. You are going to a land where God's eyes are upon it. God's heart and resources will care for you, his people. Who doesn't want to go there? This is how God works. He reveals his glory and his trustworthiness to such a degree, and yet, in our hearts, we erode that with fear. When things look large and God looks small. When we forget the power of God's majesty and his miraculous deeds and his deliverance. Here's Moses. It's as if he's saying... When you see the tapestry of what God has already done for your parents, when you've seen that but you weren't judged because of it, do you not remember as your parents who perished in the wilderness, as they held you by the hand, as you saw the fish of the Red Sea swimming about, as you walked on dry land, as you heard the sound of the chariots coming behind you, and yet God judged his enemies? Do you not remember that? If God has revealed his glorious majesty and his strength of his outstretched arm in the past, which you saw with your baby eyes, can you not trust him as a source of your confidence for the future? No matter what it will hold, go in and take the land. Paul picks up a similar theme in the book of Romans in chapter 8. He says, God gave us his only son, Jesus. How will he fail to give us with him all things? In other words, if God has led you, says Moses, to this point, why would he leave you stranded? If God has given you the present, why would he begrudge you the ribbon? If your father or mother gives you the key or the a new car on your 18th birthday when you pass the test, would they not entrust you with the keys? God will not leave you abandoned, says Moses, verses 2 to 7. Look at the past, verses 11 and following. Therefore, trust him for the future. Friends, that's how God works. And then he says, verse 18, if you've got your bearings looking back and trusting forward, how should you respond? Verse 18, this is what you need to do. We've heard this before. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Verse 9, teach them to your children throughout life. Verse 20, Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. As you think ethically through the different things that you do in your life. Remember the gates was a place of commerce. Verse 21. So that your days and the days of your children may be many. In the land that the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. As many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. See what Moses is saying? God is completely trustworthy. Don't doubt his character. Entrust yourself to his good purposes because I want you to understand God's grace. Look at how God has dealt with you in the past. Trust him for the future. But fear comes and erodes trust. Anxiety grows like a weed. And if we don't deal with it, then it can grow so large that God looks small. Friends, one of the ways that you can tell if you're a Christian or not this morning is this way. A moral person thinks that they are worth saving. A moral person can say, I'm worth saving. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've behaved. Look at what I've achieved. God, you owe me. Look at the books that I've read. Look at the service that I've given. 
I'm not as bad as that person there, my neighbour. I'm not as uh, untrustworthy as my colleague that I work alongside. You owe me. Friends, if you're a Christian, you don't see your salvation as anything that is due to you. One of the signs, a litmus test that you're a Christian, is that you never lose the the sight that your salvation, the fact that you've been rescued, is a miracle. That's what Moses is pointing the Israelites back to. Verses 2 to 7. See how God has saved you. It was nothing in you. It was all in him. You didn't deserve it. You were the smallest nation, chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. There was nothing in you. You were not the greatest. You were the smallest. You were the least. It's purely because God loves you. One of the signs that you know that you're a Christian is that you never lose the sense of the miraculous nature of the grace of God. You are not a Christian because you've earned it. You're a Christian by God's grace and by God's grace alone. And when you see that, you start to live a life of faith. You see God's trustworthiness. It's it's the fuel for your life. I didn't know Dave was going to uh, focus our attention so much on that first song that we listened to, but it's very helpful. Let me illustrate the life of faith from that song and from, more importantly, from the Bible. Remember that time that Jesus was in a boat? And there was a storm that was uh, large and looming. And Jesus' followers, his disciples, were in the boat and they were afraid. And they asked that question that we attempted that's at the heart of fear and anxiety. God, don't you care? Because Jesus was asleep. And Jesus says, where is your faith? Get it out. Use it. Why don't you apply your faith in me to this situation, to these large waves? Why don't you... Not focus on what is happening, but focus on me. Faith is the opposite of fear. And friends, whatever you're facing, not as we go into the promised land, but whatever your week in the past has brought to bear in your life, whatever you're looking to as the coming weeks unfold, whatever you see as large, remember that God is greater still. Verse 2 to 7 says, God should be the source of your faith. He should be the source of your resources for whatever you are faced with because he is trustworthy and we should be confident, not in ourselves and our own limited resources, but in God and in his mighty hand. That's what Moses is saying in those verses, verses 2 to 7. But as they prepare for the journey and as we move on, verses 11 and following, God doesn't just want and deserve our faith Faithfulness, as he is faithful. As we've seen before, we are faced with a choice. Not just faith, it's obedience that God requires and deserves. And each one of us, every single day, is faced with a choice. Point number two, the choice we all face. Look at verse 11. As you read it, you may be thinking, especially if you've been with us for a while, oh, come on. Do we not need to move on from Sinai? Do we not need to move on from the law? Do we not need to move on from blessings seriously and curses? Have we not moved on from that in the modern world? Have we not moved on from consequences and a God who is angry? And you read about wrath and God's uh, anger, verse 17, the anger of the Lord. I mean, come on. All the religions of the world are like that. Is not Christianity a message of love? And I quite understand what you're thinking in that way. But let's just spend a moment to think about those presuppositions. Verse 17, God is a God of anger. And verse 26, Moses is saying, there are blessings and curses. There is a way of obedience and a way of disobedience. There is a way of blessing and there is a way of curses, a way of consequences, if we do not want to live under God's loving rule. 
And most modern people struggle with this, and rightly so. So let's think about this. If you look into the world, you see an awful lot of people divided into two groups. There is the world of religion. In the world of religion, there are two groups. They are religions that follow the law. Obedience and duty are significant. Keeping the law, obeying the law, so that God will be pleased with you. It's it's the, the blueprint of religion. Law is important. Grace is nowhere to be seen. Obedience is everything. But then there's another group of people. They're also in religion. And it's not laws and credence and obedience to things that God will be pleased with us. It's more about spirituality. And we can divide it there. One is law keeping, rule keeping. The other one is spirituality. There's the absence of law. There's the absence of obedience. There's no obligation. There's no duty. It's more about the inner self. One is outward appearance. One is the inner self. And when we come to the Bible, we see no such division. The Bible is about following God with our heart, soul, mind and strength. It's internal renewal as the Spirit of God comes into our hearts and gives us the Spirit of life. But from that source, we want to please the one who saved us. And so we want to obey God, not because we have to, but because we want to. And Moses is unpacking that again. What do I mean? Look at this. Verses uh, 8, verse 13, verse 22, verse 28, and verse 32. Repeatedly, beginning at verse 1, Moses is saying the same thing. Verse 1, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Now hang on, that sounds like the first group of people, that if we keep God's commandments, if we obey what he says, if we do what he demands, then he will be pleased with us. Then he will accept us. Isn't that what you've just said? No, it's not. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when God spoke to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments, God did not begin with law. Do you remember? He began with grace. He didn't begin by saying, you should have no other gods before me. You should have no graven images. You should honor your mother and father. You should not murder. You should not steal. God did not begin the Ten Commandments in that way. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who saved you out of slavery. Israel already had God's approval. They already had the smile from his face. They already had a covenant relationship. And then God said, because of that, because of I approve of you already, because I love you, because I accept you, now live in this way. That's the difference. God is saying, I've listened to the cries of your heart in Egypt. I've listened as you've cried out for deliverance and I've come and rescued you. Not because you deserve it. Not because of any other reason than my love and grace. I've heard the cries of your heart and I've responded miraculously through the deliverance of Moses and his staff of authority. Through the dividing of the Red Sea, through the defeating of the ten uh, demigods of Egypt. I've shown and revealed my glory and now what do I want from you? I want you to love me. I want you to love me back. We already have the relationship of intimacy and knowledge, a deep relationship with a God who has saved us. We don't respond to God in obedience because we want his approval or need his approval. We already have it. So how do we understand obedience from this chapter? There is a pronoun that is very, very important. It's the pronoun your. What do I mean? Look at verse 1, I am the Lord your God. Verse 2, the Lord your God. Verse 12, the Lord your God, twice. Verse 13, the Lord your God. Verse 22, the Lord your God. 
verse 25, the Lord your God. Verse 26, the Lord your God. Verses 28, 29, and 31, the Lord your God. Now, what is the significance of that? Did Moses run out what to say, so he just started to repeat himself, like I did in my French exam and my GCSE? I knew one word that was worth five marks, malheureusement. I used it ten times in a paragraph. I kid you not. Is Moses in that place? He's running out of what to say. It's near the end of the book of Deuteronomy or right in the middle. No, he's not. It's not filler. It's vitally important. Here's the difference between religion and the gospel between the religions of the world and Christianity that is a relationship with God. You know the difference when you say, if you hear someone say, my Joe, my wife, or my Susie, or my Bert, or my husband, there is an intimacy, there is a relationship. When someone says, my, it's an ownership issue. It's a, a child, a sibling, or a parent. Someone you're incredibly close to. And here is Moses is saying, God does not deserve our obedience just because he is God, Israel, church. God deserves our obedience and our love and our affections because he is your God. There's intimacy, there's ownership, there's a relationality. I don't want you to love me just because I'm God. I want you to love me because I'm your God. That's the source of obedience that is not religion. It's a sign of a relationship with God who has ransomed, healed, and restored us. A God who's adopted us by his mighty arm and his grace. God could click his fingers because he has all authority and power. And he could make us obey him, but he doesn't. He could make us robotrons. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall and this nuclear bomb of sin that goes throughout the cosmos, he could call us to obey him with a click of his fingers, but he doesn't. He wants our hearts. And he wants obedience to flow from love, not to make us accepted. We are already accepted and have the smile from his face. And so Moses is saying, verse 13, there are two ways to live. There is the way of blessing and there's the way of curse. There's the way of covenant keeping and the way of covenant disobedience. I want a relationship with you and I want you to relate to me, says God, to paraphrase. Because I want your heart and I want that to be seen in the actions of your life. I don't just want assent to who I am. I want your heart. Oh, that my people, says the Old Testament, oh, that my people would say, not I'm just going to obey you because you're God. I want you to obey me because you're my God. Friends, how do you relate to God? Is it with a yes, sir, with a fear in your heart? Not a biblical, loving, affectionate fear of awe and reverence, but a fear that he will get you if you don't behave in a certain way. Is it a yes, sir, or is there a close intimacy that you can say, I love the God who rescued me. He is my God. I am his and he is mine. It's completely different from the religions of the world. I want you to obey me and to refer to me as your God, the God of the covenant. Now, I know my heart, and I trust you that you know yours too. Is there any hope for this unfulfilled longing for us to refer to God as my God? He is mine and I am his. I mean, I know that this isn't happening very often. My motives for obedience are pretty screwed up, if I'm honest. I can think that I can twist God's arm if I read my Bible more, if I pray more, 
if I attend more, if I give more, if I serve more, then God, you owe me. That's how I think so often. I mean, isn't Moses completely out of whack with our own hearts and how we work? No, I don't think he is. But centuries later, there was a man who was outside the city of Jerusalem, and he began to cry. His name was Jesus. And in Luke 19, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, that you would know the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. It's Jesus crying over a city, crying over people who know who he is, who know his mighty acts and deeds, who know the Ten Commandments, a city full of Pharisees who know the law, and yet God's love and their obedience to the law is far from their everyday life. One week later, after crying, Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross for all the breaches of the law that Jerusalem and you and I commit every single day. He went to the cross for the sins of the world. The perfect covenant keeper went to the cross for covenant breakers like you and me. For people who breached the law, Jesus took the penalty. For people that disobeyed, Jesus lived a life of obedience. And on the cross, a remarkable reaction and transaction occurs. He's not just dying the death that we should have died. He lived the life we should have lived. That's the gospel. And on the cross, as Jesus dies for the sins of the world, he didn't just cry over Jerusalem. He did something about Jerusalem, and not just for Jerusalem, but for the sins of the whole world. He hung on the cross in my place and in your place. That's the good news of the gospel. He paid the penalty that you deserve and I deserve, but he paid it himself. And on the cross, the wonderful transaction is this. All of your rebellion, all of my rebellion goes to him. And all of his righteousness comes to us. All of our disobedience goes to him. All of our imperfection goes to Jesus. And all of Jesus' perfection comes to us. It's a remarkable truth of the gospel. Jesus died because of our sinfulness and our rebellion, but he died out of love. And what God deserves and what he wants more than anything is that we would love him back. Because he's altogether lovely. And Paul takes up this theme in 2 Corinthians 5 and says this. God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus sin for us. The perfect lamb of God is another way the Bible describes it. The perfect covenant keeper, Jesus Christ, who was the only person who's ever walked the earth, who loved his neighbors as he loved himself. Who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength, as we're encouraged to throughout the pages of Deuteronomy. And Paul says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was perfect. God made him who, made, who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, together with him. Not only are our sins put on Jesus, all his righteousness comes to us. So that, friends, drives away fear. That's the source and the fuel of our confidence in God, and it banishes fear from our heart. Guilt can be far away from our spirit. Anxiety can run away. Why? Because God looks on you this morning and he sees Jesus if you're a Christian. Why are you afraid of the future? Why are you afraid of tomorrow? No one can add a single hour to their life, says Jesus. God the Father, the Holy One, looks on you through Jesus and we are in him. We are the righteousness of God if we're in Jesus Christ this morning. Therefore, we don't need to be afraid of the law. We don't need to be afraid of our own disobedience, but our obedience to God is driven by a passion 
because we love Jesus Christ. We go to the law not out of fear that we need to keep it. We go to the law and we love it out of delight because we want to please the one who saved us. There's a man called John Newton. He's most famous for writing a, a famous tune called Amazing Grace. But there's another wonderful hymn that he wrote, and here's a paragraph from it. What's the motivation for obedience? Newton puts it wonderfully. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Here's Moses wanting to encourage and present the choice that we all face between following Jesus with our heart, soul, mind and strength and the way of disobedience when we just want to follow the ways of this world. As we come around the table now as Dave's about to lead us, just reflect upon this remarkable truth. Jesus Christ is the only person that's ever walked the earth that has loved God with his heart, soul, mind and strength. He was the ultimate law keeper, the ultimate law fulfiller. And because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we should live but we never will be able to, because he lived like that, we can now obey the law, not because we have to, but because we want to. It's a completely different motivation. We can obey the law out of love and gratitude, without fear. Fear is banished from our hearts, but with joy. I want to please the one who saved me. I want to please the one who loves me, because I want to delight him. He smiled upon us through Jesus Christ on the cross. And he deserves not just our heart, not just our mind, but our very all. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that uh, want our attention, that say that they deserve our resources of time and money and energy. It's a miracle that we're here this morning. And it's a sign of your sufficient grace that you're keeping us and we trust that you will keep us till you call us home. Please, help us to understand the choice that we face. It's stark and it's clear. There's no small print in following you. You deserve our everything because Father in Jesus, you gave us your everything, your very own son. Please, even as we gather around the table this morning with bread that's ordinary and grape juice that's also bought from a local shop, please help us to see and to grasp the magnitude of what the cross means for us and the cost of what it cost to your dear son. That we would love you afresh with whole and undevoted hearts, I pray. Amen.